good day everyone and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. 3CR I was just thinking about that February earthquake disaster in Turkey and Syria, listener. And what it is really is a devastating indictment of world capitalism and the horrific waste of the social resources created by human labour. The earthquake and its aftershocks devastated an area in which 25 million people live. The official death toll is approaching 50,000. It's 42,000 in Turkey and 7,000 in Syria confirmed dead. Countless thousands are still buried under the rubble. Oh my God. A governor in the earthquake zone in Turkey says that the real death toll in Turkey alone could well surpass 150,000, making this earthquake one of the deadliest in modern history. And these deaths were preventable. Modern science and technology allow us to build housing that survives even powerful earthquakes with minimal loss of life. For example, in the 2022 Fukushima earthquake in Japan, which was the same magnitude as the latest Turkish-Syrian quake, only four people died. Four. More people died from this quake than they did in the great earthquakes in 1759 or even 847. The last earthquake that likely killed more people in this region took place in the year 526, where an estimated quarter of a million people lost their lives. But why, despite the immense advances in technology and industry since the time of the Roman Empire, do earthquakes still claim hundreds of thousands of lives and leave millions homeless? And in the cold, the freezing cold... The answer is that capitalist governments squander vast resources on war and death while neglecting the most urgent necessities. The life-saving work of building earthquake-resistant housing is unprofitable by governments and corporations in this capitalist age, and so it's ignored. This reality is strikingly exposed by the aid announced to earthquake victims by the NATO powers at the same time as they pour billions of dollars into a war with Russia that has brought the world to the brink of nuclear conflict. In Turkey itself, the greatest share of the budget goes to the military and security apparatus. They have approximately 4.5 trillion Turkish liras that went into their war machine. They boast of reportedly being the 11th strongest in the world and the strongest military power in the Middle East. Yet, Turkey cannot provide millions of its citizens with decent housing or protect their right to life. As the Turkish government boasted, it had collected 115 billion Turkish lira. Thousands of people in the earthquake hit area are still without tents or containers for shelter, 
and this forced many people to return to their damaged homes, where a couple of weeks later they were caught in the second earthquake, 6.4 magnitude. Meanwhile, countless hotels and apartments remain empty across Turkey. Four days after the first earthquake, facing international outrage, Washington partially lifted its crippling sanctions on Syria for six months. For six months. This token step, which came too late for the thousands of people buried under the rubble, wasn't followed by any comprehensive search and rescue and relief effort. Instead, Syrian earthquake victims were abandoned to their fate. In today's globally integrated society, earthquakes and other critical environmental problems like climate change or the COVID-19 pandemic, they're all interconnected world problems and they require a coordinated international response. But it's impossible to devise such a response within the bankrupt framework of the capitalist nation-state system, the system which is dominated by financial oligarchies answerable only to themselves. They are not answerable to working people and these oligarchies demand that all available resources go to waging war. They're unfit to rule. To prevent new disasters and a catastrophic escalation of war, it's urgent for us internationally to take power out of their hands and build a proper society based on social needs not private profit. And I'll remind you again, dear listener, that it is our subscriber drive at this time of year. And I urge you again to become a subscriber to 3CR. It's not just to this program, it's to the radio station as a whole. It keeps us on air, as it has done since the end of 1975. I can always count on you. So I'm going to thank you in advance for your loyalty and your, your sense of fair play, your sense of what is right, and your overall good sense, amazing good sense in supporting our station. If you're not sure about how to become a subscriber, a listener sponsor, the easiest thing to do is to just go to the website 3cr.org. Dot au, and you can follow the prompts there. Thanks. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming an increasingly important actor in the military industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep radical voices on air 
subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And now, listener, it's time to hear from the BL from the bush. You will have noticed this year so far that my constant companion, the Bagman, is not with us all the time. He's been a bit crook, but he's fighting his way back as he always does. Talk about fighters. You won't get one better than the old Bagman. And I've been a little slow myself. I did tell you I suffered a bereavement at the start of this year. A bereavement, a tragedy that knocked me pretty well flat. But I'm back here, and what I feel is nothing compared to how the people in Turkey and Syria and God knows how many other parts of the world are feeling. Natural disasters, wars. But without further ado, let's cross to the BL from the bush. G'day, comrade. G'day, listener. BL from the bush calling in. Hope you are all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We will find you. We will track you down. You will have to repay those debts and you may end up in prison. Well, this language is usually applied to terrorists and organised crime syndicates. I didn't sort of hear much such enthusiasm from politicians when inquiries are being held into pedophilia in the religious sector. Again, why wasn't this language used about the fraud committed against Medicare, the car park rorts? and all the overpayments to politicians cheating on their allowances. These are just questions that we all should be asking. The horror story of the illegal robo-debt scheme is uh, is getting aired and you can watch it live on the government website. It, it, it's a good look. Susanna rightly said, you know, the mainstream media is only giving you bits and pieces. Probably the best, uh, if you're looking for it in the papers, is probably The Guardian is about the best uh, coverage, uh, impartial sort of coverage you're going to get. The rest are all just chopped up and giving you what, what they think that you should be looking at. So really, I would encourage you to have a look at look and see for yourself how these politicians and uh, top public servants just lie and try to shift the blame to anyone else but themselves. Uh, some of these people... I still think that, that the illegal robo-debt scheme is um, is a good thing. We here at uh, Left After Breakfast, we've been onto this mob for quite a while. There's, you know, four or five involved in this, and uh, we said last year that uh, just keep watching the space because it's going to get interesting while well, it certainly is. But the worst evidence given so far is, I think, is that when Tudge was questioned about um, suicides that happened through this uh, illegal robo-debt scheme, and whether he felt that that robo-debt led to suicides. And his response was along the lines that, that there was, you know, there was a lot of reasons that people commit suicide and no one really knows why. But as, as we know very well, uh, listener, that uh, constant harassment, threats, intimidation from Centrelink and Australian services and the rest of the semi-privatised mobs that was conducting this, and and statements like that I mentioned earlier from Tudge, and also that your entitlements are going to be cancelled. 
and you maybe get sloughed up plays a big role in people's suffering you know, mental issues. All that stuff compounds and leads to people doing stuff that you know, normally they wouldn't. But when the con- this continual bombardment that they did to people, you know, and he just set, says, oh, well, yeah, there's, there's probably other reasons why they did it. Well, but I'm sure, listener, that you or someone you know probably have been caught up in this horrible, demeaning, illegal scheme. Then there's the ongoing cost of this whole this whole robo-debt scenario from way to go. And uh, if we ever find the end of it, uh, find out what it's cost the end of us, well, we'll all be aghast. But anyway, there's sort of ongoing costs of robo-debt that, that you, the taxpayer, is paying for it. You know, again and again, we, we're hitting the kicks, right? Now, the starting price before the Royal Commission, now, uh, the bag man will know all about starting prices. <laughs> The starting price here before the Royal Commission was $2 billion and that, that money had to be paid back to people that were falsely accused of fraud and all the rest of it. Different court appeals, again, this is more cost, more cost to you, the taxpayer, all these court appeals, they got knocked off, got knocked off. And anyway, end of the day, class action was brought and they had to pay back $2 billion. I bet you the bag man wouldn't mind sort of odds like that. Morrison Porter... Tudge, Robert, Keenan and Payne, they're all ministers, and they were complicit in the sea of struggling head kick it, illegal robot scheme, having their legal fees for the Royal Commission picked up by you. That's that's the taxpayer, right? Now, how, how that is is beyond me, but maybe that mob, you know, maybe the ones we just answer might be a little bit dusty in the pocket, you know, a little bit, little bit, little bit shy of a quid, you know, they're only on three to four hundred thousand a year, so they, you know, they poor bastards, they can't can't afford to uh, to hit their kicks themselves, so we're gonna do it for them. You know, these are the parasites, the very people that, that put the boot into the most vulnerable people in our society. Then they get their defences paid for. So here's a question, just a question for your listener. Out of that two billion dollars starting price, I've just always wondered why Pain and suffering was never applied to that. Even though they were found guilty of the scheme being illegal, people lost their lives, they committed suicide, and just just the pain and the suffering that people went through, and it wasn't picked up. Don't know, but it'd be interesting to know. And just getting back onto the taxpayer picking up the bill, I reckon that recipients of social security entitlements who were accused of fraudulently obtaining these entitlements could have had their defences paid for by the public purse. Uh, you reckon that would have made a difference? I think it would have. And I think it made a big difference to their well-being, peace of mind, and also to the judgments. Uh, you know, good for one and not good for the other. Of course, as I said before, you know, politicians and public servants on a nice little quid and the people on the social security entitlements, you know, what were they on back then that when all this started, this shit started? 40 bucks, 45 bucks a day. Yeah, well, you know, we can all slip down to the local, um, local solicitor and engage them and they can go get some barristers and stuff and off we go. Yeah, we'll defend ourselves. Yeah, yeah right. Anyway. Yeah, talk about harassment and vilifying people. It was Tudge, Tudge that gave the nod. He gave the okay to put put a shit shoot out on the people who were being interviewed by the media that had complaints about the way robe, the illegal robodebt scheme was being being orchestrated, and also what 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 effect it was having onto their life. There was there was a few shows on it, and mostly done by the ABC and, and other progressive uh, news outlets. But because Tudge felt threatened or the government felt threatened about that, then, then they decided to put the shit shoot out and give it to the Murdoch press. 
meaning that here you go, here's some information on these people, go your hardest. Well, go their hardest they did because they just went out and vilified people and, and targeted them and splashed their their stories across their front of their shit shoots and portrayed them as, as being the old Aussie doll bludger. And this went on and on and on. I think it's one of the most worst indictments on any government, on any like governments, but individuals, people have sort of followed this that, that I've sort of seen for a long, long time. So uh, I'll be watching the next instalment to see us struggling and kick it, Robert at Royal Commission. Now, it's coming up this week. Now, this program probably goes to air at the end of the week, but it starts on the Monday. So, But there's a couple of weeks coming. If you've got a spare minute, just, just get on there and have a look at it. It's, um, it's well worth a look. Because this, they, because when what you're watching there, uh, listener, is it's not it's not edited, it's it's not grad pieces, it's 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 real deal. As the commissioner and the defence and whatever, they're asking proper questions. There's no uh, there's no fiddle in the books there. It's it's full on. It's it is it is worth a, a look. Of how this robo debt's been carried out is that on the other page is that you've got Medicare and the NDIS. And you sort of got to ask yourself, um, why the same vigour of headhunting and vindictiveness and the end of endless sort of supply of money wasn't applied to the writing and med- of Medibank and the NDIS, NDIS? And we know that that's, that's happening, so that'll probably be the next, next one that'll be under the pump. But why, why did they attack the most vulnerable in our society and yet leave the other alone, who's running the NDIS and who's running Medibank, you know, like, you got to sort of ask yourself what's going on there. Medicare, you know, it's leaking money like a sieve, yet that's okay, discard because the right-wing conservative governments don't want it, they want to get rid of it, always have done, always will do. Maybe, maybe, oh, I don't know, but maybe it's some cynical part of me. Maybe it's because the professional people running and, and participating in Medicare and the NDIS rorts are the working pillars of our society. Maybe they're just a little bit above reproach. And I think we all know who I'm talking about here. But anyway, no double standards, of course. Listener, that's probably about me for this week. Probably enough. Probably had enough of me. (laughs) But anyway, just thought I'd catch up and uh, I'll go out in the same old way. Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast, the only show left. I just wanted to add something to the BL from the bush and his little tirade about robo-debt. The Chief Counsel for the Department of Social Services, Paul Menzies McVeigh, was asked if he appreciated that continued robo-debts would have consequences for recipients. He answered, I'm not sure my mind turned to that. He was then reminded that he was in the Department of Social Services. How did you not turn your mind to the effect on recipients? Did you have any level of discomfort over what had transpired over those three and a half years? Menzies McVeigh replied, I, I think my focus was very much on the present and the immediate future rather than in the past. Okay. He never considered the social or human impact. Well, that's just gross. What was he saying? I wasn't thinking about all the damage that had been done to people's lives over the previous three and a half years. 
I was focused on the future, you know, like what I was going to have for dinner. He was just following on with the total lack of accountability, total lack of credibility, and total lack of empathy shown by the other government and departmental witnesses. Because, you see, his mind was focused on his taxpayer salary and the generous benefits he's receiving. Turning his mind towards serving the public he works for just doesn't come into it. You know, listener, sounds like pal to me. It's a sad story, but it wasn't of much interest to me. After all, they're just anonymous victims, rather like a list of passengers on a transport manifest in Germany in 1943. Will this grub, this Mentis McVeigh, in fact the whole lot of them, Porter and Touch, will they be struck off and banned for life from ever practising law? Hope springs eternal in the human breast. But seriously, listener, these people, these alleged people who have done these dreadful things with this robo-debt, this illegal scheme, and they did it just to get what money they could pull out of the poorest, most vulnerable, most defenceless people in this country. They did that knowing that ministers of the government were rorting the taxpayers, claiming allowances away from home and they were staying with their wife or their mother. $24,000 a day in some cases. These people get away with a lot, but they want to jump on the most vulnerable in this country and squeeze what they can out of them. You know the expression, blood from a stone, well, there was no blood left. And it makes me understand and empathise with those French who stood there during the French Revolution, cheering on the tumbrils. Go for it. And if such a thing, and if such a thing could ever come to pass here in Australia, and I'm not saying I want it to, I'm saying I understand how it could have happened, you'll see me sitting on the sidelines with Irene Bolger and our knitting. Because truly, if there was ever a time to know which side you're on, it's now. Seriously, which side are you on? 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 
fella killing 20 in their sleep. Soldiers falling orders, miners fighting for the rights. Now the soldiers didn't know those miners had more than shovels and knives. What's that all you want, boy? What's that all you want? What's that all you want, boy? What's that all you want? What's that all you want, boy? What's that all you want? we as Indigenous people know have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in. It's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people. And so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And let's hear from Glenn, the 3CR resident historian, and it's about housework and the campaign for paid housework. I'm going to speak about wages for housework. Wages for housework, my word. Well, way back in 1972, the Wages for Housework campaign was launched and uh, the headline in the US magazine National Enquirer said, hey fellas, could you afford $48,000 of high-bridge women? Guess what a housewife is worth? They work as housewives, child carers, cleaners, chefs, dishwashers, nurses, and family counsellors. 
and the Waves of a Housework campaign kicked off 50 years ago this year, 1972. So that was in 1972, yeah. That's right. It was kicked off by the International Feminist Collective in the conference of Padova, Italy, and it spread with campaigns. US, UK, Canada, Italy, Italy. And they realised that women do so much unpaid work and like, where's the recognition for it? I mean, the caring work isn't a volatile destiny or love that's done. It's because of capitalism, that work needs a wage. Women's unpaid labour isn't accounted for in the GDP. Uh, women's unpaid labour is not accounted for in no. the GDP. Housework, you know, the cleaning of the dishes, changing the nappies, mowing the lawn, whatever, none of it's packed up from GDP. And it's essential for capitalism to reproduce itself. These work gets, gets done, but it's not paid for. So the wages for housework campaign kicked off 50 years ago this year. And they said, all women are workers who keep the cogs of capitalism turning. And we should have a return for it, a recognition for it, you know? The question of housework was a question about the term conditions for all women, was one of the views put forward. I have a book I studied it, well, years about that time called The Sociology of Housework. Yep. It's a good book. I still have it. Well, people like Nicole Cox and uh, Emma Federici made it quite clear in their booklet, you know, playing from the kitchen, wage for housework. But there's a line being artificial love in work and non-work. But housework is considered non-work compared to wage labour. And this is part of the push for you know, the wages of a housework campaign. This is real work, you know. Changing nappies isn't like, it isn't a fact, it's a real job to keep the family going, to keep the system going. Anyway, the wages of housework campaign went out through the 70s and it organised women in different areas, different parts of the workforce. And we saw the first prostitutes collective we saw black women for wages for housework. And um, there's different ways it manifests itself. The women's work was a form of labour, made of recognition. And it combined theory with actual hard yards and politicisation. And um, somehow we've lost our way over the last few decades. And no longer this campaign has been forgotten about. And women work harder than ever in the home. Women work harder than ever raising families for social reproduction. But there's no recognition for it. And um, again, no government counted in the GDP. Housework is not recognised. Uh, we know back in 1975, the UN said, OK, we should consider you know, housework as part of GDP. But it wasn't taken any further. So, um, yeah, 50 years down the track, the wages of housework campaign is as relevant as ever. And we can learn from that and say, so, you know, you making the sandwiches, you changing nappies, that is work just as much as a man pressing a button in a stock exchange or driving a train. But some people have lost these well, things. Driving a train's a bit more like work than sitting in the stock exchange. Well, but they consider it work. They consider it productive, pressing buttons to make money. You know, aren't they the real workers, the, the entrepreneurs, the risk takers? And that's called work, you know, pressing buttons to make money. Whereas, you know, raising four kids at home, you know, feeding, cleaning, isn't considered work. As I keep saying, 50 years ago, the wages of a housework campaign was kicked off. And... Uh, has it been forgotten? Has it been bypassed? What's happened? But it's good to recall those lessons and those struggles. It's been totally ignored 50 years down the track. It's still ignored as it was then. Well? I think it was just, um, it's not wages for housework, it's for wages for a carer. People get paid to be a carer. I suppose you should be paid to care for someone, to be their nurse, to uh, go and shopping and buy food and cook for them and feed them and clean up after them and then clean their clothes. 
Uh, look, in my job, I liaise with carers. I encounter quite a few carers working amongst the cohort I work with. But again, they're paid carers, and so many, many more. Women, especially, are unpaid carers. And yeah, at least carers are recognised to an extent of a wage, but the unpaid caring, and how many women have to raise, not just their children, but maybe their husband or their parents. And that work, raising those families, isn't recognised in GDP. And if you could put a monetary value to it, what would it be worth? So anyway, I think it's good to just resurrect these things in and discuss the fact this campaign started 50 years ago, and let's put it back on the radar. Wages for housework? I say go for it. Yeah, go for it indeed. 3CR And while I'm immersed in a little bit of history, I'm going to take you from some Australian history, mainly with music. And we moved to Australia in 1911 and the strike at Lithgow. <laughs> Some people say that Lithgow is now noted for its strike And that to break the unions up is capitalistic skite Oft has a ruthless master tried on this cruel gag But when the screw was on the men he ran against a snag The present trouble had its birth quite early in July When minor cans asked to get off the boss made no reply He went and did his duty and when he sallied back the boss said, here, you can't go in, for you have got the sack. Well, the chap was taken back a peg, but not dismayed was he. And turning round to his mate, he said, cheer up, we'll see. Now these are men with humane hearts who stand by one another. They tried to patch the matter up without industrial bother. With this in view, they thought the man who made the first big bloomer, he would not listen to their tale, go down, he'd rather sooner. Then came the head boss money bag and broke a savage grin. He said, I'll take the tuppence off and then you may go in. Not we, the sturdy man replied, we've not come here for sport. Before we sacrifice our rights, we'll take it to the court. The pit was stopped, the men were off to please a stubborn will. Tis said that volunteers came forth, was rather a command. And soon a score of weakly chaps took on the scabby band. To make things better for they fight, they called on worthy Owens. To cut some coal, but he for one gave his answer no. Then as the true men left their work with each succeeding shift, the policeman came along and said, well, you've got a stiff. But some there were who crawled about their billets to retain. Such scabs as these may never hope for man's respect again. Ah, pity tis there are such men to stoop to things so mean. To gratify the money bags, they make themselves unclean. But this did not undo the men to principles so true, who oft escorted down the street some of the misly crew. 
poor clerks too in Rainman Fine were called to help the mob With aching backs and blistered hands They broke a little gob And when they thought the workers' homes Were short of bread and buns The press was full of masters mag The men stood by the guns Still this is a Christian land Where men yield often pray Two hundred to the organ fund The men they go to hell, eh? And when the parson sues for peace And understanding passes The rich ride home in motor cars And clink the champagne glasses Here luxury and ease abound and much congratulation But they're not like the men who strike for better situations And all this trouble is for gold that goeth not to grave This is their God and not the one who sent his son to save Then brothers, wives and children dear who sigh to see such greed Stand by your precepts, living wage, life sunshines, that's what you need Be sober, honest, worthy men and let conviction rule but never, never have it said you've been a tyrant's tool. In 1929, Norman Brown, a coal miner, was shot dead by the police at Rothbury in northern New South Wales. Many more miners were wounded out of the rank-and-file members who had endured 16 months lockout in defence of their jobs. There was a very simple man Honest and quiet, yet he became the mate of every working man. And every miner knows his name. Oh, Norman Brown, oh, Norman Brown. The murderous coppers, they shot him down. They shot him down in Raspberry Town. A working man called Norman Brown. An honest man, the parson said, and dropped the clods upon his head. But honest man or not, he's dead. And that's the end of Norman Brown. Oh, Norman Brown, oh, Norman Brown. The murderous coppers, they shot him down. They shot him down in Raspberry Town. A working man called Norman Brown The bosses wiped their hands and sighed It is a pity that he died It will inflame the countryside And all because of Norman Brown Oh Norman Brown, oh Norman Brown the murderous coppers, they shot him down, they shot him down in Raspberry Town, a working man called Norman Brown. 
at pit top meetings and on strike in every little mining town where miners march for bread or ride their marches on as Norman Brown oh Norman Brown oh Norman Brown the murderous coppers they shot him down they shot him down in Rothbury town a working man called Norman Brown He thunders at the pit top strikes His voice is in the women's tears With banner carried shoulder high He's singing down the struggling years Oh Norman Brown, oh Norman Brown the murderous coppers, they shot him down They shot him down in Rothbury Town A working man called Norman Brown A miner's pick is in his hand His song is shouted through the land A land that's free and broad and brown The land that bred us Norman Oh, Norman Brown, oh, Norman Brown The murderous coppers, they shot him down They shot him down in Rothbury Town A working man called Norman Brown And here's a classic song of the worker, The Overlander. These jobs have well gone, of course. They've disappeared. I think they may have finished up about the time of the Second World War. But so much part of our cultural heritage in Australia, so much a part of our working history, we can't forget them. There's a trade you all know well And it's bringing cattle over from every track to the Gulf and back, men know the Queensland drover. So pass the belly round, boys, don't you let the pine pot stand there, for tonight we'll drink the health of every overlander. I come from the northern plains where the grass and the girls are scanty. Where the creeks run dry or ten feet high And it's either drought or plenty So pass the belly round, boys Don't you let the pine pot stand there For tonight we'll drink the health Of every overlander There are men from every land From Spain and France and Flanders they're a well-mixed pack, both white and black, the queens and overlanders. So pass the belly round, boys, don't you let the pine pot stand there, for tonight we'll drink the health of every overlander. As I pass along the road, those kids get up my dander, Certain mother dear, taking the clothes, he comes an overlander. 
So pass the belly round the world, don't you let the pine pot stand there. For tonight we'll drink the health of every overlander. But I'm bound for home once more on a parad that's quite a goer. I can find a job with the crawling mob on the banks of the Maranoa. So pass the belly round, boys, don't you let the pine pot stand there. For tonight we'll drink the health of every overlander. For tonight we'll drink the health of every overlander. What jobs they must have been, eh? There was Graham McCarthy bringing us the overlander. A true classic. And more from Drovers with Augathala Station. I don't know how these men did it. I don't know how their families managed. Were they all single men wandering around the bush droving cattle? Well, according to Augathala Station song, they must have all been single. But I'm sure that many of them were married and their wives, I suppose, did what women have always done kept the family together, worked hard, bloody hard, running a little small holding or even a big farm, waiting for him to come back, what, once a year? Well, Ranton will roar like true Queensland rovers. Ranton will roar as onwards we push until we return to the Augustella station. It's flame and dry going. Through the old Queensland bush Farewell To you Brisbane ladies Farewell To you girls on to one We have sold all our cattle And it's northwards we'll travel But we hope we shall see you Again before long And we'll rant and we'll roar Like true Queensland rovers Rant and we'll roar Onwards we push Until we return To the Augabella station It's climb and dry going Through the old Queensland bush Now the first camp we make Will be down by the river We'll off with our swags And lay the place flat We'll bed down the herd And before the sun rises We'll move them again and we'll cross the black bot and we'll rant and we'll roar like true Queensland rovers. Rant and we'll roar as onwards we push until we return to the Augustella station. It's flame and dry going through the old Queensland bush. So mount your horses, we'll ride into town, boys, we'll stop. At the pub, and to drink the place dry We'll spend all our money on the shanty town Women and his dawn is a-breaking Away we will ride and we'll rant And we'll roar like true Queensland rovers Rant and we'll roar as onwards we push Until we return to the Augabella station It's flame and 
might join in the fun with the waltz and the polka and all types of dancing to the old concertina of G.X. Smith, the town and the winner. And What a life that drove-in must have been. It's all different now. Cattle aren't moved around like that anymore. And of course, things are mechanised. And we all have phones. Places aren't so far apart. We could always stay in contact with each other. Not like the old days. Faces in the photograph have faded And I can't believe he looks so much like me For it's been ten years today Since I left for old Cork Station Saying I won't be back till the droving's done For the rain never falls on the dusty diamond tina and a drover finds it hard to change his mind For the years have surely gone Like the drays from Old Cork Station And I won't be back till the droving's done Well it seems like the sun comes up each morning Sets me up then takes it all away For the dreaming by the light Campfire at night Ends with the burning by the day For the rain never falls On the dusty diamond tina And a drover finds it hard To change his mind For the years are surely gone Like the drays from Old Cork Station And I won't be back Till the droving's done Sometimes I think I'll settle back in Sydney But it's been so long it's hard to change my mind For the cattle trail goes on and on And the fences roll forever And I won't be back till the droving's done For the rain never falls on the dusty diamond tina 
And a driver finds it hard to change his mind For the years have surely gone Like the drays from Old Cork Station I won't be back till the droving's done For the rain never falls on the dusty diamond tina And a drover finds it hard to change his mind For the years are surely gone Like the drays from Old Cork Station And I won't be back till the droving's done Okay, everyone, that's it for this episode of Left After Breakfast. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you same time, same place next week.